Join Global Genes and the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine for the annual Rare Drug Development Symposium, June 6th and 7th in Philadelphia. The symposium will focus on the drug development process and is designed to connect, educate, and inspire rare disease advocates. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash RDDS. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Natural history studies track the course of a disease over time, helping researchers understand the different ways a condition may manifest itself and progress. These studies can also provide insight into whether patient populations should be divided into subtypes for more targeted therapeutic approaches. Such data often represents a foundational understanding of a disease that can play an essential role in the design of clinical trials, helping investigators design appropriate protocols and select endpoints for a study. In some cases, natural history studies can serve as an alternative to a placebo arm of a clinical trial. Ahead of the upcoming Rare Disease Development Symposium, we spoke to Erica DeBoover, Deputy Director of the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, about natural history studies, the different types that exist, and why they play such a critical role in clinical trials for rare diseases. Erica, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about natural history studies, the work you do at UPenn Orphan Disease Center, and the role natural history studies can play in clinical trials for rare disease therapies. Let's start with definitions, though. What is a natural history study? Okay, so a natural history study is a study that follows um, people over time who have a disease or are at risk of developing a specific condition or a disease. And um, the, the role of a natural history study is to collect health information, either from questionnaires or um, medical tests, laboratory assessments, to describe the disease, understand how the disease develops and progresses over time. And so an important difference, I think, with a clinical trial, which is a term people may be familiar with, is that clinical trials are really there to test experimental treatments or therapies, whereas in natural history study, there's no therapy being tested. Natural history studies come in different flavors. What, what are the different types of nat natural history studies? Uh, okay, so um, I think broadly speaking, you can, they can be either retrospective or prospective and cross-sectional or longitudinal studies. So and just to uh, explain those terms, a, a retrospective study is a study that looks backwards. So there's existing patients who have been living with the disease or condition and information has been collected, for instance, in their um, medical records. And then we go back and access those medical records to get that information out. 
So you basically, how you do that is you define a type of patient that you want to include in terms of diagnosis or outcomes, and then you go through the records and find those patients that fit that profile. Whereas with a prospective study is a study that you design and you look forward and then you decide what types of patients you want to find and then you go out into the community and find those patients and start following them up into the future. Um, And then in terms of cross-sectional or longitudinal, so cross-sectional studies are studies that collect data at a single time point. And that may be either around the time that patients become sick or become diagnosed or some specific time point. So they collect, they basically contribute medical information or disease information from a single point in time, whereas with a longitudinal study, patients will be followed frequently over a long period of time. And so natural history studies can be either prospective or retrospective, so they can have that combination of various um, retrospective Prospective, and the gold standard obviously is a prospective longitudinal study, but it's not always possible to do those. Um, and so, some studies that like that I've worked on too in the past, they may actually be a collection of prospective and retrospective and longitudinal and cross-sectional data. They'll collect everything they can. Often, when we see new patient groups form or around a rare disease. One of their first priorities is going to be conducting a, a natural history study. Why are natural history studies so critical? So they are very important, I think, for rare diseases because they really serve multiple functions and they contribute value in multiple ways and at all stages of drug development from discovery through marketing. Um, and it's partly because they can help broaden our understanding of the disease itself and the disease evolution. They can help us understand uh, disease subtypes in the population, help define a disease population. They can also help us understand better how to design clinical trials um, and help us define how long a trial should be, so trial duration, entry criteria, um, and endpoints. They can also, um, another way I think that they can help us is by helping identify um, or validate biomarkers that can then be used as a sort of, um, potentially as a surrogate down the line in clinical trials or uh, provide a proof of concept to show that a new therapy might have some um, activity before you're actually able to show that there's a clinical response. But the most important or one of the more important ways that I think natural history studies are um, of value to the rare disease community is because they can be used as an external control group or comparator data set for therapeutic interventional trials that test new therapies that are coming on board and then to support marketing authorization for those new therapies. Rare diseases can be very heterogeneous Is there a a critical mass needed to conduct a natural history study? That's a good question. Um, In theory, yes, but I think my personal view is that more is better. I think it it can be very difficult to find these patients because the diseases are so rare, and especially if there are already experimental treatments coming on board, it may really limit your the patient pool that you can recruit from because you will then sort of patients will be trying to go 
to interventional trials, obviously. So there is really sometimes a limited window of opportunity to collect that really valuable natural history data. But I think overall, every patient counts so um, and provides some valuable data. So the more, the better, but any, every patient counts to, and contributes to our understanding of the disease, really. And how are these studies generally funded and maintained? Mm -hmm. What role do patient organizations play in that regard? Um, so I don't know if you know this, but a well-conducted um, natural history study can actually be very expensive and, and cost in a range similar to what an interventional trial can cost. And that's partly driven by the fact that these ha usually are global studies. Um, because patients are so rare, we have to go to multiple countries to find the right patients. Um, we have basically study sites where the patients come to have their assessment done in multiple um, countries. And then there's also um, expensive assessments such as MRI or um, other specialized tests that may need to be done that add to that price. And so... And they will, if they run prospectively, they will run over multiple years, right, with patients returning every 6 to 12 months or so. We have, um, I think there's multiple funding models out there. Um, so some are sponsored by the government or in, this, in the U.S. by the NIH, and there's examples of theirs uh, in field of gangliosidosis and in uh, dementia. Um, some are funded by um, industry, right, so corporate sponsorship, some uh, have some funding from foundations or are sometimes um, people rely on patient's insurance to cover parts of the trial costs or um, there are cases where it's a combination of all these types of funding that are used. And um, I think you had a question about uh, the role patient organizations play. Yes. Right? So I think, yeah, so I think they have a really, they play a key role because um there's many ways that they can actually help in terms of recruiting patients so they can, A, identify the need for natural history data um, for the disease in question. They can also help with identifying sort of key clinicians who um, work with these patients and who may be uh, a willing and able to participate in the trial. And then they can also help um, us with identifying patients but most importantly, I think they really play a critical role in helping the patient community understand the value and the importance of participating in these trials and how what they're doing it by participating, how that can drive um, sort of patients, mobilize them to participate in natural history studies can actually drive then drug development and help get um, treatments to be advanced, really. How do you go about finding patients, often we're dealing with diseases that are very poorly understood, may be undiagnosed in many patients who have them, and, and affect very small populations. Yeah. So I think it's, I think in this regard, patient foundations play a critical role. Um, they often have um, sort of access to patients. Patients tend to find and work with foundations or have contacts with them. So that's one source. And as I said earlier, I think it's their support for a study, the outreach that they can do, and then the ability for them to mobilize patients is really instrumental to 
the success of a study getting off the ground and then patients being motivated to continue to be part of the study. I think another source is expert clinicians. They typically have a number of patients they're working with, and they are able to also articulate to the patients why it's important to participate and approach patients on behalf of, of those of us who run these trials. And then I think the other thing we do is we do sort of our own outreach um, through um, social media. And occasionally we have patients who will contact us, either on referral from their physician or who find us online. Um, I think rare disease patients are very resourceful and they, um, I think they long to have information and sometimes that's how they come to us. <laughs> I'd like to go back to a point uh -huh. you touched on before, but yeah. I'd like you to talk a little bit further about the role natural history studies play in clinical trials. How, how much of a barrier to developing therapies is a lack of understanding about the natural history of a rare disease? Yeah, so that can be a big barrier. Um, I think they're actually natural history studies, as I said earlier, they're very important to the development of rare diseases. and. Partly that is because it's not always feasible or ethical to do a controlled uh, clinical trial. That includes like a placebo group where patients get a dummy treatment, right? Uh, that serves as a comparator for a treatment being uh, experimental treatment that's being tested. Or there's no um, existing therapy, so an active control group is also not possible. So in those cases... Um, natural history studies play a really valuable role. And um, I think if we don't understand the natural history of the disease, then it's really also difficult to design therapeutic trials because you don't really know what sort of outcomes or differential outcomes you're looking for. So, um, so for some of the diseases that we're working on, we're really relying on natural history data as that external control group to evaluate outcomes in clinical trials. And in the absence of that, those studies, I think it may really be difficult for uh, to show that a therapy really is working and is providing like a meaningful benefit. Um, I, don't, I can also talk a little bit about sort of our experience with the FDA recently. I think there's a growing interest in rare diseases, um, and as a consequence, I think the FDA and other agencies that we've interacted with over the years have been putting more focus on the need of really well-conducted natural history studies. Uh, have, have the regulators mm -hmm. shifted in their attitude towards, towards using natural history studies as controls for trials? Um, I think the bar is increasing, but that's my personal opinion from sort of, you know, being in this space in the last, for the last six or seven years. So the standards, I think, of both the FDA and the EMA for what constitutes a reasonable external control seems to be shifting towards requiring more rigorous data from more sort of rigorously conducted natural history studies. So I would say yes. But at the same time, they are open to using natural history studies as a control group for therapies where... Um, it just would not be possible or feasible or ethical to do a placebo-controlled study. Well, how do you how do you design a, a natural history study? What are the key elements, and are they generally the same for each disease? Uh, good question. Um, so we usually start with getting input from expert clinicians, from researchers, 
from foundations and then also very importantly from patients or patients' families um, to capture disease-relevant information, to assess sort of what outcomes are going to be are important to patients and to include relevant and clinically meaningful tests, right? Um, and so the format we use is through a, a study protocol, and that's really a document that describes in detail the disease that we're studying, the diagnostic criteria that are being used, the types of patients that we want to study, and then a list of sort of disease-related information, and then the types of assessments and tests that are going to be conducted, how often they're going to be done, how long the study will be, um, clinically meaningful, sort of, and then also how are we going to analyze the data and what's going to constitute a clinically meaningful change. Um, and potentially also if patients are on standard of care or other therapies, can they be used? What, what would that look like? So there's a lot of information that goes into that protocol in terms of are they, dis and I think that general framework um, for study protocol is similar from study to study, but there are differences depending on the disease that we're studying, the type of population we're studying, we're actually including different information that's going to be driven by the disease. For instance, the duration of the study, the types of assessments that are going to be done, the frequency of the assessments may all be different depending on the disease that we're studying. That can be quite a challenge. I mean, it strikes me that the value of a natural history study may be determined by how forward-thinking the folks who designed it were. Do you have to think about potential endpoints in a clinical trial of a drug when you structure a, a natural mm -hmm. history? Yes, absolutely. And I actually think it's critical that you think about the various ways that your data could be used, right? So when we um, design these trials, we we have that, we try to have keep that in mind. And not only whether it's going to be used as a competitor for a drug trial, but it could also be serve other purposes like broaden our general understanding of the disease, um, get more data on whether different subtypes of the disease and things that are sort of more maybe research focused. And so I think whether it's for each of these purposes, I think you have to keep that in mind when you design the, the natural history study so that hopefully what we're designing is something that is really going to have multiple uses at the, on the back end because the key, I think, is that we design studies that are going to serve as many uh, people and as many purposes as possible. Well, in, in that regard, mm -hmm. I, I take it the natural history study can also be a roadmap to finding potential endpoints and, and biomarkers. How, how are they used in that regard? Yep. So um, so I think that goes back to an earlier point I made about the importance of trials to help broaden our understanding of the disease and disease evolution, right? So um, usually these clinical trials, by really collecting detailed information over time from many different assessments, can give us insights into what meaningful endpoints are what, um, and can also help us sort of better define the patient population or the disease population and describe like the full range of disease manifestations that are going to enable identification of say subtypes that are going to be or selecting patient populations that are going to be likely to progress. 
at a specific rate, which you may then be able to include in a first trial to be able to assess a drug. Or, it, like you say, to your point about biomarkers, it may actually help us identify um, or validate, use the data from a natural history study to validate um, bi new or existing biomarkers. So I think there is a lot of value in, nat in collecting natural history data. How much of a challenge is the consistency in the way the data is collected, and, and do these studies generally rely on patient-reported or investigator-reported data? Um, to your first point about um, data consistency, I think data consistency is, is very important and usually achieved through using standardized testing methods, validated questionnaires. In case of multi-site trials, we achieve that by training people, participating physicians and their staff, in how to administer specific tests or how to assess patients for specific assessments, especially if those are like novel tools or specialized instruments that not every physician who participates in the trial may actually be experienced with. So that's one way I think that we achieve consistency in data collection. Um, to your point about how much of the data are patient-reported versus investigator-reported. So um, natural history studies are really conducted under a protocol, so the majority of the data are going to be investigator-reported. That is, the investigator will be collecting the data and putting it into a database for us. But it can be based on interviewing um, patients or their caretakers or caretakers and um, maybe filling out questionnaires so there are patient-reported outcomes that can be included. The balance of how much of that is just straight-out assessments versus patient-reported information some depends to a degree on the disease that is being studied and the types of endpoints that are important or meaningful um, in that disease. Now, uh, just I think another important point is I think that the whole concept of patient-reported outcomes is really... Um, growing in interest. There's a lot of interest now, both in the patient community and in regulatory agencies and bodies um, involved with reimbursement, for instance, in validated PROs, patient-reported outcomes, and in clinical outcome measures and endpoints that are really meaningful to patients. And I think to that point, I don't know if you are aware, but there was a uh, FDA hosted a webcast recently, like a week ago, to obtain patient and caregivers' perspectives on the impact of rare diseases on their daily life and um, to assess how FDA and also uh, drug developers can better understand and sort of incorporate those into the drug development process. So I think that just exemplifies how important this is becoming. How important is it to include patients who are early in the disease process in a natural history study? It's really important and very difficult to do. <laughs> and the reason this is difficult to do is that often rare dis patients with rare diseases go through a very long diagnostic process, and by the time that they receive a diagnosis, have actually are already... Uh, sort of through that initial stage of their disease. So it's really difficult to capture the full extent of what we call the natural history from the um, first start of the disease process all the way to the end. Um, 
is really difficult to do unless there is newborn screening and patients then are identified at birth, obviously, through testing. But those types of tests are not available for the majority of rare diseases. What role does your center play in conducting natural history studies, and do you work with rare disease organizations seeking to create a natural history? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one goal of our Ocean Disease Center is to support and accelerate rare disease research and development, and with that, um, we do conduct uh, patient registries and natural history studies. So we design them, we execute them, and um, sort of we are also... um, then provide, with the goal of providing open access to the disease community of the rare disease data collected. Um, So, and we actually were just, we are a fairly new center, um, and our group that is conducting rare disease is fairly new, but we all come from a background in pharmaceutical industry with a lot of clinical trial expertise. So, this is, and we bring that expertise to the design of these trials. I think one important thing um, that I want to mention in the context of natural history studies is that um, for us as a nonprofit, it's, our operating model is one of open access. So we really work with the rare disease foundations, with clinical experts and industry partners to fund, design, execute these trials, and the but really the ultimate goal is to make those data accessible to the full rare disease community, to academic researchers, and then to drug developers who can then use those data to advance uh, their own work. Um, But in that process, I think foundations are very important, and I think we touched on that earlier because they have such, they're really the link between us and the patients and being able to communicate the importance and the value of doing these trials. Erica DeBoover, Deputy Director of the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Erica, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to meet Erica and learn more about natural history studies, join Global Genes and the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine for the annual Rare Drug Development Symposium, June 6th and 7th in Philadelphia. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash R-D-D-S. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.